Okay, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, we're continuing our study on how to give the gospel according to Jesus. Let's evangelize like Jesus did. And this is a section that's repeated in three of the four gospels. So I think we're supposed to pay attention to this, not just in terms of the storyline, the, but also the content of Jesus' message and also the method that he models for us in how to win the world like Jesus did. When we give the gospel in a way that's convictional and clear and deep and true to scripture, how do you expect people will respond? What's the norm? I would argue that this storyline is here to show us the norm that By and large, most people reject the true and pure and clear gospel when it's presented with the conviction of the word of God behind it. The trend is to measure success in terms of evangelism, in terms of receptivity, in terms of people that like it, people that want God, that want to come in and fill up a church house. And we want those things, but we need to preach the gospel in a way that's true to its content in terms of its meaning and significance. We need to preach the gospel or speak the gospel or give the gospel to people in a way that has eternity in mind, heaven and hell, eternal destinations. We need to present truth in a way that mirror reflects back someone's heart to him or herself, where they can see their sin and really do business with what's going wrong in their life according to what scripture says, and either choose to repent of those things and follow Christ or reject and turn away. When you give the gospel clearly and faithfully, it brings people to a real real crossroads where they're making a decision to go one of two directions, either to receive Christ and all of who he is and all of what he says and promises, or to reject him wholesale and say, no, I don't want him because of who he is or what that means to me. We need to give a solid message these days, and we need to be a solid church that gives this message because the world and culture is in a clear death spiral right now, rejecting everything that God says in his word. People are watering down the truth as opposed to being faithful to the truth. People either do that or they will ratchet up what they're saying on an intellectual scale on such a level that people will try to think their way to heaven or trust their own intellect to get to heaven. You can either dumb the gospel down or ratchet it up. And in either course, you're missing the true gospel that goes to heart transformation. You can't think your way into heaven. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't punish yourself through some kind of penance to get yourself into heaven Christ's only demand and real demand is full surrender to himself and his truth. Believing what he has done and embracing him by faith alone. In light of this, there was an event this week that I'll just mention that some of you may have heard about. It's sort of a church-wide event where the Southern Baptist Convention chose to vote out one of the most popular evangelical preachers um, of our age. Rick Warren, they voted, Southern Baptist Convention 
by 88% voted Rick Warren out of the convention. And they did so because they were concerned with the fact that he was not standing for complementarianism. And and they have, both in practice and belief, um, Rick Warren and the Saddleback Church has promoted women preachers. You say, well, why is that a big deal? Well, it really comes down more to what is your understanding of the clear meaning of Scripture? When you read Scripture, what does that mean convictionally? And the Southern Baptist Convention determined that Rick was compromising on such a scale that they excused him from the convention, voting him out. I think that that is all in light of the backdrop of a convictionless culture that is the church these days. The church is convictionless. It's, it's compromising and not standing for truth. Instead of being a conviction-driven church or a conviction-driven gospel, it's just saying, hey, we want to quantify success in terms of participation, in terms of being a social club. Um, come as you will, come as you are, with no sense of conviction from the word of God. No accountability. Zero. Where do I get this from? Well, just, I want to model how we give the gospel in terms of how Jesus did. And he gives us this example beginning in verse 16. It's him giving the gospel, him evangelizing the rich young ruler. It begins in verse 16 of chapter 19 by way of review. A man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This is Christ's evangelistic approach. It came to him by providence. He wasn't running this man down. This man was coming to him because of Jesus' character, message, and testimony. This man who was a rich, he was a wealthy man. He was young. He was full of life and vigor, had all of his life in front of him, and he was empowered in the synagogue as a ruler. He had it all. He had wealth, he had his health, and he was full of himself because he was this total package guy and he wanted to add Jesus to his list of accolades and he wanted to guarantee, have Jesus guarantee to him that the good life he had now would extend for all of eternity. That's what people want in life. This is cultural norm, normalcy with what the rich young ruler was representing and he was coming to Christ to say, what more can you give to me? And Jesus was demanding full surrender from him. Verse 17 is where the question is raised. He said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? The rich young ruler wanted to do good deeds to have eternal life. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus was holding up the standard of goodness here. He says, there is only one who is good. He's holding up the first half of the Ten Commandments, in essence, saying, this is what God looks like. You can't have other idols like money, success, and power. You got to let those things go. There's only one who's good. You can't earn your way in. That's the question. If you, would eternal li- if you would enter eternal life, verse 17, keep the commandments. This is the, the section goes into Jesus using discernment as this rich young ruler reacts to him. He says, which ones? You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie or bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? What's wrong? The second half of the law, all these commandments, don't lie, steal, cheat, honor your father and mother. 
All of this is, in essence, loving your neighbors yourself. And Rich Young Ruler says, check, check, check. I've got it. I've done it. I'm good. So what do I still lack? I don't lack anything at all is what he's implying. And it's exposing his lack of discernment about himself. Jesus is discerning him rightly, and he's missing the point altogether. He's exposing, he's exposed as a fully prideful man. In verse 21, Jesus challenges him and says, if you would be perfect. In other words, if you think you're perfect, let me show you a deficit. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What he's saying to this man is, I demand one thing from you, and that is for you to acknowledge who I am as the good God who's offering you something that you can't earn for yourself. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't think your way into heaven. You can't, you can't punish yourself enough to get into heaven. You can't do anything to get into heaven. What I demand from you is full surrender. And what that looks like in your case is for you to be willing to let everything go and give everything to the poor. I want all of your heart. And nothing, nothing less than that will do. Otherwise, you're disqualified from heaven. That's how Jesus was giving the gospel. Full surrender. Sell all you have. What you'll gain for that full surrender is treasure in heaven. In other words, you will have eternal life. And you can come and follow me now. You have life now and life forever. That's the gospel. When the young man heard this, this is... The challenge, and then this is the man's choice in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man knew he had a dilemma. He was not willing to let go of one thing to have another. He wanted to have two things at the same time, the world and God. He wanted the world and Christ. And Jesus said, you got to let go of one to have the other. And he wouldn't do it, so he went away sad he was, it was what Kent Hughes said was an increasing darkness fell over this man's heart. Sadness. This is leading us to the debrief. Jesus has given the gospel. He's modeled what you're supposed to do. What most evangel- evangelistic classes or missiological classes, classes on missions would say Jesus failed because he didn't contextualize enough. He didn't reach the person's heart. He didn't draw the person in. He didn't fill the church up with rich young rulers, which is the model for the evangelical church. Target the rich young ruler. Target the young um, professionals and get them in the church. They're the ones who will bring the life, the vibrancy, the strength to your movement. You can expand and get great big. If you get these people in there, Jesus gives the gospel at such a level with such a standard that turns the guy away Sad and sorrowing. It didn't work. So did Jesus fail? Well, he gives a debrief to show why he didn't fail. That begins with verse 23. Let me read through the end of the chapter. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, 
in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So this is uh, Jesus' evangelistic debrief. He begins with the diagnostic in verse 23 and a diagnosis. What happened? The immediate analysis is that this man's rejection is normal. It's to be expected. And his rejection was not Christ's fault, but it was the man's fault. It was hard for the man to let go of his wealth. Verse 23 says it is with difficulty. It's a hardship for someone to let go of what they want so badly to worship in their own lives. Does that mean having money is bad? Let me just digress for a second. There are patriarchs in the Old Testament who had money, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they all had wealth. Job was uh, known as the wealthiest man in the world at one point. Solomon had great riches. Abraham, as we said, David, Joseph of Arimathea had great wealth. Paul, even when he was incarcerated under house arrest, when he was writing the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon, um, talking about Onesimus, who was the fleeing slave who had left Philemon, and Paul encountered him, met up with him in Rome, led him to Christ, and then sent the slave Onesimus back to Philemon. He said, whatever damages that caused you for his departure, put that against my account. So Paul had means. He, he wasn't lazy. Christians are called to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. We're to go to the ant and not be the sluggard. We're to work. God provides for our needs according to his riches and glory, food, clothing, and shelter. If you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an unbeliever. So we're supposed to be providers, and we're also supposed to live by faith, but not by magical thinking. The culture calls magical thinking where you just dream up ways that you think you're going to be blessed by God, and they call that faith. That's not faith. That's bad stewardship. God provides with a certain number, with a certain way, and you have to steward your money and, and um, be responsible with it and give generously, but also live on what he gives you to live on. These are not contradictions. This is concomitant thinking. Stewardship and faith go together. But with difficulty, this is a man the rich young ruler represents who was worshiping life comfort, life satisfaction, life riches, life glory, life health. This is the self-care movement where everything is about yourself. And it was destroying this man's um, situation because he knew he was not going to have this forever. He was insightful to know that he needs to have a bank stored up for him in eternal life. And he was wanting that as well. I want to live this life forever. And he went away sad because Jesus said, you have to let go. You have to be willing to hold all that you have with an open hand. If you're going to have me in eternal life. And so he went away sad. Jesus wasn't a failure in this mission. He was giving the gospel on a level that someone who's trusting in themselves could reject. You don't want people who are trusting in themselves to have a false sense of security. 
where they believe they're right with God, but they really aren't. They're still trusting in penance. They're still trusting in works. They're still trusting in intellectualism. They're still trusting in their philosophy. They're still trusting in their family heritage. They're still trusting in their family name. They're trusting in their money. They're trusting in their status. They're trusting in their power. They're trusting in their job um, identity. Those things do not get you to heaven. You have to be willing to lay those down and say, I'm of Christ. These are not my identity. They're not my passageway into heaven. A lot of the church culture has been born out of youth pastors who have grown up and become the senior pastor, and they've transposed the youth philosophy onto their church. And the youth philosophy is get people in with cotton candy and bells and whistles and video games and do whatever you can do to set the stage to draw people, attract people, and to keep people there. It's exhausting to think about doing something like that. I think it's okay at at a level in youth ministry to set the table for people to come, but really the draw to come to church should be to encounter Christ in his word. Uh, Anything else we do needs to be, needs to not be the tail that wags that dog. You come to come under truth and to give your heart and worship and praise to the Lord and to fellowship and to meet one another's needs. That's church life. That's fellowship together. It's described that way in the early church. And I, would, I took nearly enough youth ministry courses to get a minor in youth ministry at Liberty University, and I used to get in trouble while I would sit in the class, and I wouldn't intentionally disrupt the class, but I regularly would raise my hand during the philosophy question and say, why don't we just talk about taking care of the depth of ministry with the word of God and preach it clearly to the hearts of youth and let God, let the results be left up to a sovereign God. Let him take care of the breadth and the growth in ministry. At one point, I had raised my hand one too many times. And this professor who was like a youth guru at Liberty and kind of a house of fire, very large man, his face turned purple, filling up with blood. He looked at me and changed the whole class of about 40 of us to all about me. And he said, Jeff, I know about you. I know about your youth pastor. Youth pastor tells me about you. You're a skeptic and a cynic and you're, you know, disruptive. I literally felt myself sinking in my seat. And he he said that, You know, he sort of caught himself up short because I was trying to just say, look, why don't we do ministry like Jesus does and is described in scripture where he preached and sometimes the crowds would believe and sometimes they'd be dispersed. And he said, no, but you're a good guy and, you know, you're going to lead in the pulpit one day. That'd be great. And then a guy in the back stood up and he said, you know, I kind of take Jeff's position that uh, we take care of depth and let God take care of the breadth. And students were looking at me. You know, these were... But at least I got my money's worth in class. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of played out that way. It's, you preach the word of God and you want people to make the humble renunciation of the world to follow Christ. And I've heard it said a lot of times people don't preach the gospel clear enough, straightforward enough, and with enough word of God for it to be convicting at all. For it to be convicting enough for someone to say, okay, I see my sin and I need to forsake that and follow Jesus. Well, that's that's the diagnostic. Now let's move to the diagram. Here's the picture of what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 24. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Liberal scholars have 
um, kind of twisted this to say there was a needle gate, something like a slim, narrow gate on the outside of Jerusalem where a, a person who was riding a camel would have to strip down all the goods and things that were packed on the camel to be able to scooch the camel in. R.C. Sproul commented on this, saying that in addition to various gates of Jerusalem, there was a small entrance. This is what liberal scholars believed, known as the eye of the needle. It's Normally used for caravan travelers in a pinch who could force a camel to its knees, prodding it forward. A trader could use this opening to enter the city. That's a great story, but R.C. said it's absolutely without scholarly confirmation. There's no such gate. It's a use of hyperbole. That's what Jesus is saying here. In the Talmud, um, the quote was that you could, you could um, prove something as if putting the elephant, it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of the needle. And so Jesus just used that phrase here to say, listen, if we're talking about a rich man getting into heaven, tr- who's trusting in themselves, trusting in their riches, that's, that's easier to get them to heaven than putting a camel, a, the largest animal that most um, in Jerusalem would relate with. There were elephants, but I mean, the second largest was the camel. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a wealthy person who's trusting in wealth. If you trust in wealth or self or health to get into heaven, you've, you've neutralized the gospel in your life. You've made it impossible to get to heaven at that point. Look at the next point, disillusionment. This is Jesus' 12. They're disillusioned by what Jesus has just said. It says, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? In one sense, they're looking at the rich young ruler going, if he can't get in, this guy who's got it all, then who are we to get in? We can't get in. If he can't get in, we can't get in. What are you saying? This is the rhetorical question of compromise that's splayed throughout all of the church. You have to make the gospel palatable, convictionless enough so that everyone will like it. The standard is too high. It's too convictional. It's a turnoff. And the apostles here, like the church today, were incredulous at a gospel like that. They were turned off themselves. Jesus was being so clear that they were obviously astonished by what he was actually saying. Who then can be saved? Don't we need to water things down at a level of acceptance so many will come in? This seems far too costly to join. Well, here's the, the determination. This is what Jesus says in response to them, verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It's as if Jesus was waiting for them to be astonished so he could insert this truth. With man, if you try to save yourself, you make it impossible. With God, though, all things are possible. If you in your mind do not conclude that you need a divine intervention in your life, then you're making it impossible for yourself to get to heaven. If you can't say, I need God to save me, then you make it impossible. Uh, it's summertime. I sometimes remember being a, a beach lifeguard from way back, but it just sort of reminds me of evangelism because you have people who are out there who are asking for help. You know, help me, help me, I'm, I'm drowning, I've fallen off my raft. There was one time where this, this um, lifeguard was, he's a friend of mine, he was watching this 
this father and daughter on a, on a raft and the wind was blowing. We were on the East Coast. It was blowing from the West. So it was a West wind. And he looked down for a second and looked up and suddenly he saw a speck out in the horizon and that was the float with the father and the daughter, let's say, out there. It might've been a son. It was way past the pier, way out there. So he ran out there and you know, his, his other buddy and they, they swam out to get them. But what had happened is as the man got off the raft, the the girl fell off, she started drowning. The man got out there and he started drowning as well, trying to save the girl that was drowning. So they're both drowning. The only way that those people can be saved is if they let go, stop trying to save themselves, trying to save each other. And just when you extend the life buoy to the person, they just take it. You can't save yourself. That's the point that Jesus is saying. If you try to save yourself, you're going to all drown. Well, here's the demand. The demand is the counter response of Peter on behalf of the disciples. And I'm going to just read into what I think Peter's heart is here with what he says. You can take it one of two ways. And Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, you can read that one of two ways. You can either say, well, Peter is saying, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm in sort of humble resignation saying, okay, I get it. So what's left? That's one way to see this. Or you can upload what we kind of believe Peter is like is more of a belligerent person, um, kind of has some passive aggressive tendencies. He's challenging um, Jesus again, saying, look, we're not, okay, if we're not like the rich young ruler who, where we're hanging on to stuff, then we've let everything go. Luke's gospel, Luke 18, 28 says, we've even left our homes. We've left everything. So what do we get in return? I think there's some of that. Like we get where you're coming from, but what's in it for me? Here and now, you know, are you going to overthrow Rome? Are we going to rule here on earth? What do we get? Where's our promise of eternal life? Or maybe he's thinking a little bit still in the residual effects of a works righteousness mindset. Look, we did this. So then what do we get out of that? A little bit of a pragmatism there. Not sure. What Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't condemn Peter. Because he knows that they are new believers. He knows that they have left everything. They left their, their fishing posts. They, they left their homes at least to go on mission with Jesus. They're genuinely following Jesus. So he, instead of condemning them, as one person put it, he doesn't castigate the disciples for being mercenary at this point. He doesn't do that. He talks about heaven instead. He talks about heaven. They're exasperated. They're saying we've left everything. And he affirms what they are going to receive in the new world. Talks about heaven. A lot of times people don't think in terms of eternity with the gospel, um, with evangelism. Think about this. When you're evangelizing somebody, are you concerned for them to go to heaven? Or are you concerned for them to join your church or to like you or to receive the message? We want them to receive the message, but we need to think in terms of what's going to happen implicationally, heaven or hell. We want them to have a relationship with the Lord now, but we want them to have a relationship that lasts forever. I was uh, listening to a podcast yesterday. When I cut my grass, I try to do that and listen. And it was um, two guys who are both African-American and they, are, um, they do a podcast called Just Thinking. One guy in California, one guy in Georgia, and, and, and they talk about issues. And they were mentioning a podcast that hit um, you know, the level of millions and millions of 
of listeners had listened to this podcast, so they they directed me back to that, and it was in 2020, and it was right after um, the death of George Floyd. It was during the pandemic, so remember all of that was happening, and and then you had the death of George Floyd, and so you have two African Americans who podcasted the day after that and were commenting about it, and I thought, well, that'll be interesting. So I started listening to that. Out of all that they said, which a lot was good, I didn't finish it, but out of all that they said, one thing stood out to me, and that was this. They had not heard, no matter what denomination had put a statement out or statements that were made from pulpits, nobody had asked the question, at least at that point, about the condition of George Floyd's soul now. Is he in heaven or is he in hell? That's the key question to ask about any issue in life. Are people going to heaven or are they going to hell? That's the key question. That's what Jesus is pointing to here to Peter. If you're concerned with what you're going to have for following Jesus, think in terms of heaven. Verse 28. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He takes them to heaven. This is a declaration to the 12. He's being very gracious to Peter. And he's saying that you're going to have something in the new world. The new world is the word in the regeneration. Literally, it's uh, in the regeneration, polygelicia, which is the realm of the reborn. In heaven, where everybody is reborn, there's going to be something for you. In Titus 3.5, it talks about believers are made new by the washing of regeneration. Acts 3.21 is where Peter's preaching on Solomon's porch, and he says Christ will be received back to heaven for the time of restoring. This is the son of man who's pictured here, Jesus, who's sitting on a glorious throne. And those who have followed me, meaning the 12, will sit on 12 thrones. This is a picture of the 12 apostles. Judas will be exchanged out by Matthias, who is voted into the apostleship because of Judas' apostasy. And the 12 are judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What does that mean? 12 tribes of Israel are representing those who had rejected Jesus. Apostate Israel will be judged by the apostles sitting on the throne. This is what heaven's like. It's the clear privilege of righteousness. You didn't earn your way into heaven. It wasn't through works righteousness. It wasn't by anything you did. You're, but you're given grace to be in heaven, and you're going to literally be in sinless heaven to be able to rule in this way alongside of Christ. I talked to a loved one who was dying and she was asking me in this context, what will heaven be like? And heaven, I simply said, will be just like it's described in terms of the relationships Jesus had with his disciples. He talked to them, he related with them. The only difference is it'll be without sin. There's no sin in heaven. So it's perfect fellowship, but Believers are given privileges. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we are to judge angels, verse 3. Revelation 2.26 says those who conquer to the end, you'll be given authority over nations. Revelation 3.21, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne, the one who conquers. Revelation 20, verse 4, talks about those who are beheaded during the tribulation, how they'll be given the opportunity to reign with Christ for a thousand years. 
the millennial kingdom. Revelation 21, 12 through 14 describes heaven in verse 14 as the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So whether we're talking about the millennial kingdom where the 12 apostles are reigning on thrones or we're talking about co-regency where we as believers are reigning with Christ on our um, position with the Lord as in co-regency rulership, I don't know. I don't know what position we'll have to judge angels or to rule with them that's not disclosed in specificity, but it's very powerful to think about. What does it cost to do something like that? Well, not only is this for the apostles, but it's for everyone. Look at verse 29. It says, to everyone and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You're going to receive a hundredfold. I like Jesus' math here. It's not a hundred more than the apostles where they're ruling against Israel or unbelieving Israel. But it's a hundred times more, a hundred times more. Um, Kent Hughes said it this way. I like Jesus, math. He, he does not say a hundred percent more. He says a hundred fold more. One house gone, but a hundred doors open. One brother in the flesh lost, but a thousand brothers in the spirit whose love is deeper. Well, the cost is high. You, you leave a house, a brother, a sister, a father, or a mother, or children, or lands, That's a high cost to leave something here on earth to follow Jesus. Does that mean we don't love our families? No, we love our families. We're called to love our families. We're called to have a house or provide for our family food, clothing, and shelter. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that we hold everything with an open hand. And if the Lord moves us to further his kingdom, we say, yes, Lord, I'll come. If the Lord interrupts a relationship in our family, even immediate family or adult child that's, that's against us because we are for Christ, we say, I'm going to follow Christ nevertheless. I looked at this where it's saying you've left houses. Never in my wildest imagination, says a young person who grew up in Virginia, would I have thought that I would spend a great portion of my life here in Alaska. It's incredible. I never thought I would be in a pulpit in Alaska. But this is where the Lord has us. This is where the Lord has me. It's where the Lord has you as a part of his divine design. And if you're following him and you hold things with an open hand, then he leads you and guides you and directs you and fills your life with blessing. Blessing that's like, a hundred times more than it would have been otherwise here on earth, but also in heaven. In the early church, the picture of heaven was seen in Acts 2, where they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread. They were seeing signs and wonders, having all things together in common. That's not Marxism. That's not communism. That was just they were sharing with shared generosity. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing to the, proceed, the proceeds to all as any had need. So they were making ways to provide for real needs that were legitimate in the church. So that's life together. We experience a heaven on earth version as we give ourselves fully to the Lord. The church provides for each other through relationships. And this is ultimately fulfilled in heaven. How fair is this? Well, look at verse 30. It says, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. I think this is a little bit of a poke back at Peter. 
to say, look, don't think that you've earned some special privilege because you're an apostle or a leader. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus will get heaven and will get a hundred times more than even you're promised as an apostle. It's an amazing privilege to go to heaven. One person is Um, advise me not to talk about this too much because all of this is explained in the next chapter on the day laborers parable. Uh, And the whole point is if you work all day long for as a day laborer or you're looped in in the final hour, you're getting the same day's wage. And that means everybody who follows Jesus gets to heaven, either if you follow early in your life or at the end of your life. If you follow Jesus, you get all of heaven. And you get a hundred times more than the apostles. That's the idea. That's the principle. You say, is that fair? Well, getting to go to heaven is not fair. What would have been fair is we're all sent to hell. But those who are sent to heaven, those who receive eternal life, they get in and they get all of heaven. We're grateful because it's undeserved and it's ill-deserved But the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's as if we're all running this race and at the the end of the lap, the final lap of crossing the finish line to go to heaven, all of the different people who are at first place, second place, third place, everybody lines up and the first shall be last and the last shall be first and everybody crosses the finish line at the same time. We all get the same heaven by grace alone. This is the gospel. This is the eternal life gospel that the rich young ruler wanted the wrong way. The only way to heaven is to say, I'm fully surrendering myself to Christ for him to save me. I was on a um, kind of a directed Zoom call where I was uh, part of a little study, study group with, uh, with somebody else online, and it was an unbeliever. And this unbeliever was looking over my shoulder and he saw the pictures um, through, my, through my computer of different church history picture heroes of church history figures on my wall. And he started to ask about them. So you're a preacher and you, know, you're, you study God's word. I'm like, yeah, that's what I do. And he said, is that Charles Spurgeon? Is that Martin Luther? Is that, you know, the different ones that are there? Jonathan Edwards, is that... Um, John Knox. And I said, yeah, those are those people. He said, well, okay, well, so you're a preacher, so you're a Christian. I said, yeah, I'm a born-again Christian. He said, well, tell me what that means that you're born again. Explain that to me. And so I'm like, okay, this is like a gospel softball. I'm studying the rich young ruler. I'm I'm preaching the gospel on Sunday, and so I'm supposed to do this. This is what it means to be born again. Your heart is open. You're alive. And I was 17. I was this lost sinner, and I'm saved by grace. And some Californian guy, and he's just listening to all of this, and he's saying, okay, well, explain to me what it's like to be in the church and all this, and I'm going on and on. And he said, you know, I, I say all that to say that, you know, I've heard of these church history heroes. I've heard of biblical expositors. And 10 years ago, this guy, you know, really hurt my life by being this, this terrible expositor and this awful person. And what you believe is wrong and it's false and it's hurting people and you don't have the true Christ. Ultimately, he went in such a digressive direction that he accused me of not having the Holy Spirit. And I was just like, man, I could get really upset at this guy right now. And so because I was reading the text about the rich young ruler, I started to get sad for him and, and feel grieved for him. And I just said, you know, you're saying a lot of things in terms of what you're saying I did to you, but really I didn't do any of this to you. And I, I think we need to look at the Bible together. I said, all I'm doing, I'm not trusting in these church history heroes. I'm not trusting in, you know, anything that that's man-centered, no men 
because he named names of men and mentors that I've had and different things. It was weird. And I, and I just said, I said, I'm trusting in the Bible. And I turned to my computer and just said, this is what I have on my desk. This is what I'm studying. And what I perceive from you is that your attack is coming from a heart that's angry and bitter. And you're not manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, which is Galatians 5.22. And I talked through the fruit of the Spirit. Ultimately, the conversation was going nowhere. I had held up the word of God to him and he parted from me and me from him and he went away sad. So did I pass or fail in giving the gospel? Well, I think if Jesus was faithful in this story and pattern for giving the gospel by holding the standard high, but by loving the individual that he was trying to reach, I think Jesus didn't fail and I think In that sense, I didn't fail. I'm sure I didn't do it perfectly. Mark 10, 21 says that Jesus, when he looked at the rich young ruler, he loved him. He loved him. And I think that's the way we evaluate our evangelism. Do you love the person you're talking to? And secondly, are you holding the standard high? Jesus' message, Jesus' method, perfect. The outcome, all in terms of the sovereign will of God. So I want to challenge you as a church, as believers, as individuals, look for your opportunity to speak truth to people, but do it in love. Be faithful. Don't compromise. Give the convictional gospel and leave the results up to the Lord.